I've always appreciated systems-based approaches to solving problems because they facilitate scaling. More specifically, creating thoughtful processes can enable high growth endurance, the subject of this Substack series, which means sustaining 70 to 100% growth rates even once you're approaching 100 million in ARR. Shashir Marotra, co-founder and CEO at Coda, has spoken and written extensively about company rituals. I was curious to hear his take on how strong rituals can help companies grow fast for many years in a row. And I'm glad I did because this conversation was jam-packed with actionable suggestions. We covered questions such as, what rituals can help companies tackle new revenue streams, new product launches, new geographies, or acquisitions? How should you adapt your rituals as you grow? And if you're looking to get in shape with respect to rituals, where should you start? You can listen to the podcast or else read the lightly edited transcript of the conversation. Let's dive in. Shashir, I am so excited to have you on this podcast today to talk through rituals for teams that are looking to sustain high growth endurance, which is the subject of the current Substack series. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Allison. Longtime reader. <laughs> awesome. So just to start out, I know you've written and spoken a lot about rituals, which is not usually a term that I hear when people are throwing around jargon about how to operate a company. Usually it's like operating cadence or processes. I think you probably have a different lens in thinking about how to make a company scalable through the use of your term ritual. So I'd love to hear what is a ritual? How did you land on that term? So it's a fun word and I hope it's uh, it makes its way into everybody's vocabulary. But they, uh, maybe I'll just tell a little story about where my first experience with the term came, uh, I sat on a board with Bing Gordon. Or if you know Bing, Bing was uh, one of the founders of Electronic Arts, and he's now a famous investor and Amazon, Zynga, many great companies. And he's one of the best nonlinear thinkers I know. And we were on this board and he kept asking the company, what are your golden rituals? And at some point we said, what the hell does that mean? And he said, oh yeah, golden rituals, as if it was kind of obvious. He said, golden rituals, that's every great company has a small list of golden rituals. And they have three criteria. Number one, their name. Number two, every employee knows them by their first Friday. And number three, their template. And Bing has a list that he rattles off. Like Amazon has six pagers and Google has OKRs and Salesforce does a thing called V2 Mom. These sort of iconic rituals that have been framed in these companies. When he said this, I got intrigued. I ended up talking about this on a different podcast a couple of years ago with Reed Hoffman and Master of the Scale. And I just got all this like wonderful response afterwards where people said, what are your rituals? And I have one to share. And I then started to research a little bit and started talking to people and interviewing them and saying, you know, Bing's got these three tasks. What comes to mind? Fairly open-ended and amazing to me what people will respond with. And one of the people I was talking to, I was talking to Naveen Gavini, is the chief product officer at Pinterest. And at the end of our interview, he told me about the thing they do called Pyramid OKR, which is kind of a fun way to think about planning. And then he said, hey, Shashir, could I sit in when you interview the next person? I was like, well, that's kind of weird, actually. But I can, I can see if I can work something out. So he said, well, how about we do it as a dinner? And so through the pandemic, basically every month, I would host a group of people to show off their rituals to each other. And I learned a whole bunch of things in this process. First off, I learned people have more rituals than they, you might think. And people were very forthcoming about them. Like they, they were very excited. Like the, everybody has kind of little secrets of how their business operates, but this isn't one of them. Like people are very happy to talk about their rituals. People are very interested in each other's rituals, which is also fun. But probably the most interesting thing I learned was rituals is actually, the reason they're so exciting is they're a little bit of a code word for culture. 
Dharmesh Shah is the founder of HubSpot. He gave me a really good way to think about it. He said, as companies, we produce two things. We produce a product for our customers and we produce a culture for our employees. When you ask people what their culture is, sometimes they give you culture statements on, you say, what does that mean? How does it work? And generally they get tangibleized into rituals. Oh yeah, we have this open culture. Why? Well, because the we do this open Q&A on Fridays and this is what it feels like. Or like, it's like, like some ritual really makes it happen. And so I started seeing rituals, not just as like a fun topic, but actually like the secret to these company success because they're really a mirror of culture. They're actually almost synonymous terms. And so I decided to turn it into my sort of side project. I, I, for a while, I did it as kind of a hobby and then I got convinced to turn it into a book. And so I'm now writing a book. It's called Rituals of Great Teams. Um, I'm basically taking the top 100 rituals I picked out and putting it into this book. Um, I thought this would take a few months. I'm now two years in. I own my manuscript in two months, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I've gotten quite obsessed about the term and the idea and trying to learn as much as I can about everybody's rituals. I'd love to think through with you how great rituals help you grow when you're at scale and particularly how you might adopt different rituals at different stages of your company. So for example, you know, as a framework, I'd love to hear what's an example of a great ritual when you're at 10 million in ARR, a great ritual when you're at 50 million ARR, a great ritual when you're at, say, 100 million in ARR. So the book has five major sections of five different types of rituals. Uh, one focused on strategy and planning, another focused on how meetings and cadence works and so on. So some of them definitely change with scale. And some of them I would view as kind of universal. Like these are like, once you see this idea, like you should just do this. Like it's like, um, and there's actually some that have a diseconomy of scale. I mean, there's some rituals like, uh, you know, Sheryl Sandberg talks a lot about rituals, like celebrating everybody's birthdays in your team meeting. Like that works great up to a certain number of people. And then like, yeah, it doesn't work anymore. And so there's like, you know, uh, rituals that sort of naturally age. Um, and maybe I can give you an example of each of like ones that I would, I think scale and ones that, ones that I think are somewhat universal. And I would say this is, there's a bucket of rituals that I'll call decision-making rituals that definitely get pressure as you get bigger. You, you, like the stakes get higher as you get bigger. But actually, I think the best ones I got were from companies where you don't think they actually needed. They're not at that scale yet, but it's just sort of part of their DNA to do it. One of the rituals, actually one of ours that I, I end up talking a lot about is something we do called Dorian Pulse. And it's a very simple idea is, um, and basically every meeting or write up a code up, you'll have a, a Dorian Pulse. And that Dory is, you know, we'll have a document that says, this is what we're trying to decide. Um, and rather than like go through all the comments in the right-hand rail, I had one of my interviews say, it feels like all the important decisions in our company are made in the right hundred pixels of a Google doc. That can't possibly be the best way to do it. So we'll have a Dory, which is a list of questions where people can vote them up and down. It's named after the fish who asks all the questions. And then we'll do a thing called Pulse. And the way Pulse works is everybody gets a row and is meant to fill in their viewpoint. So we're trying to like, should we launch this feature? Should we, um, should we hire this person? Should we buy this company? So everybody fills in yes, no, or scale one to five, whatever it is. And the reason, um, and the way we do it is we hide everybody else's until everybody's done. And so you kind of remove that group think out of this process. So this is a great ritual where I get asked a lot about this with companies at scale. Um, and it's like a very common thing I'll get asked about, Hey, we just hit, you know, thousand employees. Decision-making is really tough. Uh, it's very diffuse. And they'll ask about decision-making process. I'll end up talking about Dorian Bulse. Um, and I've seen like many companies have variations of this, like Zoom does a thing called 
uh, RCR, root cause reasoning. Uh, Square does a thing called Spade, which is their their version of this. But basically, they codify their decision-making process in some way that is usually built around like, this is how we want to make decisions and this is how we want to take feedback to make decisions. Like what, what's the role of each person um, uh, in, this, in this process? So that's a thing that I would say, adapt, like the importance of it changes as you grow. Because like the, the dynamics change. Like when you're small, like the Dory Pulse thing works just fine. You're 10 people, like you just need, you need, it's, it works really well because you just need a way to get everybody's viewpoint without biasing each other. When you're big, the reason for using almost the exact same ritual change. Now you have to like, like one of the things Coinbase does that I really liked is they have a very similar thing to Pulse. Just like they make everybody write what their viewpoint is. So you don't, you don't kind of go around the room and let everybody bias each other. But they tag each person with what their role is. So they use Rapid as a framework, like you know, responsible approver, performing, interested, in, and uh, decider. But what they do is like take everybody's input, but you're very clear on like this is your role. So like, thank you for your feedback. You're the interested group, so we'll read it. But you're in the uh, approved group. We're like we have to. We need to wait for this answer. So the core ritual changes as you grow, but the heart of it is like, how do we want to structure decisions? So that's one. Um, that I think changes a lot. And I got, I mean, this, I probably got a hundred examples of different decision-making processes. One of the most common ones. The one that I would say is the most, like, if you think about it, like a, a, um, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, like as this thing grows, you have to mold the old one in order to get the new one is planning processes. And, and that was very interesting because it took a while. Actually, this chapter of the book has, um, I, We'll see. It was just the sticks, but I came to the conclusion that when people gave me planning rituals, I'd ask them, "What are your golden rituals?" And you know, some people's head went to, "This is what we do for hiring. This is what we do for meetings. This is what we do for." But planning was a very common one, and for those, there were like very specific patterns that were very influenced by size. And I think there are basically three stopping points. Um, and I think that, and and you know the. There's lots about the planning ritual that is kind of different by industry and company and so on. But there's one specific thing that clearly scaled, which is what is the output of your planning process? And, and that was very, and there were basically three buckets that mostly correlated with size of company. So the early ones were all, um, people called them different things, but I call them the big rock pictures. So this is like, you're early on, all you really need to do is say like, these are our top three priorities. These are our top five priorities. And that's like, that's enough. We're done. Like that's, that's that. like when you're a small startup and you're just getting started, like all you really need to say is like, we're going to work on X, not Y. Then the second bucket becomes generally, um, I think of it as a responsibility matrix, but it becomes, um, uh, OKRs become a very common tool where it's not enough to say, these are the, like the three things we're trying to achieve. You have to like figure out what each team is going to do along that path. And so you kind of like, you're now big enough that you can't just say we're doing X and everybody will figure it out. You kind of need to, like, you do a part of your process, just like, we're going to do X. And now everybody write down what part of X you're going to do. And that, that becomes like sort of level two of planning. And then level three of planning is the resource matrix. And like all of a sudden the output of planning is a budget. Um, it's often a cross matrix budget. Cause like we're, we have um, almost every company at scale ends up with this, this spreadsheet or code doc or so on that has one axis, which is like the teams. And the other axis, which is the priorities, and you kind of fill in, well, you know, this team is going to put three resources on priority one and four resources on priority two and, and so on. And 
And you kind of like, you're now big enough that it's not enough to say you will do X. I need to know how much you'll do X. And I need to know what else you're not going to do because you do X. So, so anyway, those are kind of two buckets of ritual decision-making. I would argue shouldn't actually change that much as you grow, but, um, and it kind of built in the DNA and I highly encourage people to like build decision-making culture as early as you possibly can. Cause once it's cemented in your company, it probably won't change that much. And planning is a thing where I, I you know, people will get to a new milestone and I say, throw away the old way. It's not going to work anymore. You've now crossed into, you've moved from big rock world to OKR world or you moved from OKR world to resource and budgets world. And that's like different type of rituals. Those are great examples, particularly the planning process. I've been writing a lot and, and publishing stuff that other people have written about OKRs, you know, over the past couple of years. And it's been actually fascinating to see that kind of methodology be developed and also to see how companies evolve it, as you say, over time as they become bigger. I'd love to chat about other rituals that make you excellent at growing at scale. I, I'm thinking about, for example, getting good at new product launches, which might be something that you have to do in order to generate additional revenue streams as you need to meet higher and higher revenue targets. Or for example, you know, rituals that help you get good at acquiring other companies or entering new geographies. Again, thinking through what are the different revenue streams that help you get to 100 million ARR and still grow fast at that rate. Do any examples come to mind? So first thing I would say is some of those things that you mentioned, new product launches, rituals around new geographies, I would put a bucket. There's companies that have ritualized it and companies that they kind of just take it as it goes. And the companies that have ritualized, like new product launches, probably the most iconic interview I can remember was learning about how Zynga does new product launches. And I mean, it's just like amazing, but amazing how they do it. But it's, it's so built in their DNA because they do it all the time. They have game after game after game after game. And they've kind of learned some patterns around it. Actually, probably the most interesting one that I interviewed on this topic was um, uh, Pixar. And I mean, there's a whole book written about creativity. But like Pixar's an amazing company. I mean, they've done so many movie launches. And I think their first 15 movies were all like hits by like any standard, revenue standards, by winning awards, by so on. Like, how do you do that? How do you have 15 straight? And each one, like, I know we don't always think about movies as products, but like, I guarantee they do. And like, and they've got a bunch of rituals around how they do it. Like one of their main rituals is this thing they call the brain trust. And it's a pretty simple idea, but they have a group of people who are intentionally not part of that team that part of the, the the team that's working on it and you sort of bring the product to them at regular intervals and that group is sort of trusted to give you very direct feedback that has sort of become part of their culture if you sort of squint a little that culture is actually very similar to a thing amazon does called bar raisers and bar raisers is you know i think if people have heard of bar raisers they've usually heard about it in a hiring context so amazon has a culture of um, you go through your interview loop and then there's one person who's a bar raiser and that person is like intentionally not in the hiring chain and it's like meant to maintain the, like the hiring bar, um, across the company. But it actually turns out when I was interviewing some of the Amazon folks about, uh, for the book is that they actually use the same bar raiser thing for like 15 other things. So if you're launching a new product or in a new market, they have a set of bar raisers that are accountable to this and they train them. Do you like, you apply to become a bar raiser? You get trained, you do a shadowing program, you kind of get this authority of like, we have now sort of blessed you as a, as a, as a bar raiser. And, you know, it was designed around the recruiting or like the Pixar one was designed around movies, but this sort of, I think that, uh, and Zynga has something similar, but those are all examples of, they've done it so many times 
that they've, they've decided we're going to standardize this process. On the other hand, there's a lot of companies where like they're a single product company and they're about to launch their second product. And it's like really hard to do any of those things. Because all of a sudden, all your logic from first product, first off, you've forgotten what it was like to launch your first product. So then you're, you're like in here and it's just, I was talking to the Figma team about this because, you know, Figma's massively successful product. And they came out with FigJam, which I kind of had to start from zero and like, and like kind of new market and it's addressing a slightly different target. And like, you know, the right ways to build products like that is like, you know, you have to let them wander around a little bit and you got to like be a little bit careful about overpressurizing before they find that fit and that draw that is actually like, this is what people really love about it. It is actually quite hard to do. So I don't know that for companies that if you're like going from, you know, zero to some, from zero to one to two, you probably quite early to do that ritual. So it depends a little about the type of company you are. But if you're the type of, I mean, another good, you asked about geography, like the, there's companies for which launching new geographies is their bread and butter. You talk to the people at Uber or DoorDash or so on, like they have a complete playbook. And in fact, it was like the secret of their success was like they could launch a market. Like one of the things that Uber got really, really good at was launching a market without putting any boots on the ground in that market, which is like a really kind of crazy thing to do. It's like, how do you like, and for a product that's very physical, it's very like, you actually kind of need to know geography and fun. They would do it the entire thing virtually. I interviewed this company that actually one of the guys who used to run the Uber driver program turned around and started a real estate company using that same set of methodologies and rituals to launch. They basically are buying and selling houses in tier three markets. And they uh, applied the exact same philosophy. How do we launch a market by putting zero people in the market? But that became their ethos. It's like, we're, we're going to judge this this way. So, I mean, my answer to your question would be the best rituals I saw were from companies that like, this is their bread and butter, like launching new products, launching new markets on. I would say for the ones where that's like not their bread and butter, you mostly saw confusion. Yeah. <laughs> Which is probably one reason why so many new product launches and acquisitions and new geographic entrances fail, right? Yes. It's not part of their bread and butter. Yes. I think in particular, what's interesting about this topic that we've been discussing, like rituals, when you're trying to do something new, is that when companies reach a certain stage, it's often difficult to maintain that kind of spirit of innovation. Like maybe the people that you had at your company when you were initially going from zero to one are no longer there. As you said, maybe you've just forgotten what it was like as a founder to do that zero to one stage initially. So there's something sort of paradoxical about saying, oh, we need rituals to kind of remind us and help us do new things. I'll give you one one more maybe along this line. I think incentives really matter. There's a really good line in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, about like a startup is defined by the smallest group of people you can convince about your crazy view of the world. And it's very important that that team have a team dynamic. Like this, we're in this together. And one of the mistakes I think that companies make is they try to run new products through the same cycle as their existing product. And like you, the planning methodology thing, like, you know, they go, they, they like went from big rock mode to OKR mode to resource budget mode and say, okay, we're going to launch a new product. And the way we're going to do it is like, you're going to take half the responsibility and you're going to take two thirds of it. And it's going to be a quarter of your job. And then we're going to launch this new, new product. And what they miss is like that group of people really needs to feel like this is all that matters to us. And the incentives have to be very aligned to the teams. One of the rituals that Google did for a long time that unfortunately faded away was at a thing called Founders Awards. And basically Larry and Sergey would every year, they'd pick one project and they basically like grant that team a big bucket of stock and cash. And so, but it, the key was it was a team award. Like there's no way for an individual to win this award. Like one of the early ones that won was the Gmail. And it caused this like, like this side project that was doing okay and so on. 
to create this dynamic of like, oh, that's how we do new products here. Is like, like when I joined YouTube, like YouTube was this weird backward side of Google or it wasn't really working or losing a bunch of money. But every person I talked to said, look, if we hit these milestones, we'll get a founder's. And now all of a sudden it was the equivalent of we'll go public. So Shashira, I know a lot of folks are thinking about how to prepare themselves for a potential significant downturn. There's certainly a lot of uncertainty in the macroeconomic environment right now. Are there any rituals that you think could help founders make it through this stage very well? So let me, let me get to the rituals part in a second and start with what changes when the macro environment changes. This is the third upturn to downturn I've seen. I mean, the, 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 I started uh, my first company in, in 2000, watched that set. I got into YouTube in 2008 and watched what happened in 2009. And so I've been through a few of these and there's a couple sort of philosophies I've learned and developed. The one is, you know, the company we create value, not valuation. And it's really important to keep in mind, like it is our job to create value. We we're focused on, you know, delivering great products for our customers that they love and, you know, in most cases pay for. Um, and the, that's where we need to stay focused. And if you spend all your time obsessed about valuation, you will drag your company the wrong way. Um, and so the first thing I would say is like, if, if in this environment, you spend all your time thinking about the stock price, you probably, you've probably gotten it backwards and they, um, and you're probably going to end up doing a disservice to all of it. The second thing is scarcity breeds clarity. And I remember when, you know, I got to YouTube 2008, um, and we had, we had sort of a year of like the go-go years, like, oh, like money's free and not as free as it has been in the last 10 years, but even like the, you know, those, those, we could invest in anything and all the people take, you know, go to the CEO of Google at the time, Derek Schmidt, like all he wanted was go, 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 grow as fast as you possibly can. Um, and I remember my first, you know, market starts turning and I remember my first meeting with the new CEO at Google, a guy named Patrick Rochette. And he sits down and he has, he's like, ah, I've been studying the business. I have these three charts. I'm trying to make sense of them. And the first chart said, here's how, um, here's how much money you're losing per year. And it was hundreds of millions of dollars about to cross a billion dollar plus. Second one was, here's how much money you lose per view. And it was almost a penny of you. Um, not quite, but pretty close. And the third chart said, here's what views are doing. And it wasn't like a little bit up into the right. It was like a complete hockey stick. He's like, yeah, I know you think that's good, but he's like, this is the worst business I've ever seen. This is never going to work. What are you going to do? And his next question was like, who else could we sell it to? And it's like, who else wanted to buy this thing? Cause this is never going to work. And he's like in the middle of a big downturn and, and lots of market pressure. And obviously he's feeling Google, which, you know, had never felt any real market pressure was all of a sudden feeling pressure of like, how, how do we, how do we hold costs and, and produce money and so on. And that flowed downhill to all, all of us. And, you know, Larry and Sergey are in the room and Sergey made this fr- statement that, that, you know, he's made many times. I really grew to love. He said, scarcity breeds clarity. Um, and so this is what you have to do. And now you can't have infinite resources to do it, but you still have to do it. Um, and I think, you know, if I think about those two frames, you know, we control value, non valuation, scarcity breeds clarity. I think it helps. As you think about what rituals really matter to drive that viewpoint, the scarcity breeds clarity. One of the things we started doing, and I've now seen it, I've seen variations of this in so many of the companies I interviewed, is how do you get your team to empathize with the company's level of scarcity breeds clarity? Like everybody, very natural incentives happen in a company when things are scarce, where 
the natural emotion is the inverse of what you want. Everybody's first reaction is, I better grab the food while it's here. This is a, a very human thing. Oh, there's not going to be as much food. I should probably grab what I need. Not just for me, but for my team, for my family. Like I should grab what I need. And all of a sudden, everybody's asks go up. Hey, I just told you scarcity beats clarity. And everybody's like, ooh, right. Let me double my ass. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like I did that thought. And, and, and many like leaders will get frustrated by this. Like, don't they know what's happening in the market? So I'll say, yes, but you haven't gotten them to put on their company head. And so there's a set of rituals I've seen for doing this. One of the ones I've, I love the most is what I learned from, there's now a whole book written about it called Game Storming. Um, and they have a whole series of how to use games to change behavior. And I think it's a, kind of an interesting word to think about in the workplace is game sound like trivial, but actually very effective. And one of the ones they talk about is $100 voting. And it's a very simple exercise. You know, we each get $100. We have a list of priorities we can go through and you've got to allocate across them. Um, I actually do this now. Uh, we do it in annual planning. I do it with my board. So I make the board do it, which is like a really interesting. I also open on our, on our, usually in our Q4 board meeting and I'll say, okay, I've outlined these are the, you know, seven or eight things we could do next year. We can only really do three of them. Um, you each have $100 and vote. And the way we do the exercise is you allocate and then next to each one, you say why. Yeah, I think this one should get 40. I think this one should get 30 and so on. And do it with the board. Like everybody in the board has a company hat, but you do it with your management team or they, with the, with the extended management team, all of a sudden it forces them to wear your hat, to wear the company's hat and describe why. And they can't just say, give all the, give all of it to my team because we're, you know, the only one that matters. You get out of that defensive mode. Um, and it kind of frames that, that context better. So I, I think that's one example of one I've seen work really well is the, the principle of it is scarcity breeds clarity, but saying that will create the opposite emotion unless you create the ritual that allows everybody to act like a company owner. So that, that's maybe one, one example. I love that example. I mean, there's a very clear call to action for founders. And I, I know many of them are thinking through big decisions like this about capital allocation. So very timely. As a final question, what's one tip? If you could tell a founder who's trying to get into shape, so to speak, with respect to their rituals, say their early stage, maybe just raise their Series A, what would you tell them? I would probably tell them it's kind of related to your first question on what is timeless and what is not. There's some rituals where people ask me, how should I run planning? How should I run my staff? Just realize like the moment you grow by 10x, all this has to like go out the window, right? And then there's others that are really, they are going to form your culture forever. And if you get them right early on, they will, they will be the same forever. And you know, the handful of rituals that fall in that, in that bucket, I'd say in my mind, the hallmark of good versus great companies tends to be how they make decisions. And so I'd pick decision-making rituals, but in particular, I'd pick one that has been really impactful to us called Eigen Questions. There's a good write-up out there uh, about it. It's a name we made up actually at YouTube. It's a pretty simple idea that in a, in a, when you're making a decision, um, there's a list of questions to answer. Eigen Question is a, a term that refers to the one question that if answered will answer the rest of the questions as well. It's the most discerning question of the set of questions. It's a very hard technique and there's a good write-up on it. A lot of people go read that separately. And, and there's a, there's a story called the modern family story about how we did this at YouTube. But what I'll often see people do is they'll spend a lot of time in decision making, focused on getting to the right answer and not on getting to the right question. And it's a giving a name to it, giving a culture to it. of like, we're here to make this call. Let's start with, are we asking the right question? Often turns out that in a list of 10 questions, 
the, the one at the top, because it's like the most visible, the most impactful case of YouTube. This was this question of like, should we link out to modern family or not? Was how the question was framed. But it turns out there's a question like five or six questions down the list that if you answer that question, all the other ones go. I think how you make decisions as a company is the most important thing you can embed in your culture early on. And then learning how to ask the right questions is actually more important than learning how to make the right decisions. So that's why top of my list. Jajir, thank you so much. This was super actionable advice. I love how specific we can get with the subject of rituals. I know that's what founders want. They want specific steps that they can take to drive revenue growth, improve the way their company works. So it was great to have you today. And I'm sure everyone's going to be really excited for when your book comes out. Thanks, Allison. Great questions. 